Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. That's where I'm going to start. Now I'm going to be a thousand other places, but that's where I'm going to start. It's in Romans 11. When Cody sent our song selections out this week, Brandon, I think, said, I bet the message is about grace. That would be a good guess this morning. I want to start something new or different this morning, um, a different series for the next four or five weeks. Let me explain the series, tell you the backstory, and tell you why this series is important, why we need to look at these messages. On October 31st of 1517, that is the day that Martin Luther... Catholic priest walked to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church and nailed a bundle of papers to the front of that church. And that act of protest may not seem like a big deal to us, like especially after the last year with George Floyd riots and uh, storming the Capitol and all these sort of things that you find in the last year, right? This may not seem like a big act of protest to nail papers to a church door. But we are still feeling the ripples of that act of protest today. In those years leading up to that, the Catholic Church, which was the only church at the time, was, you know, there were no other real denominations in the sense. This was primarily Christianity at the time, 1517. And the Catholic Church was known at that time for its corruption, moral corruption, decadence. And doctrinal error. They weren't teaching things that were right with Scripture. In truth, um, leading up to that was when they were building. I'll give you an example of one of the things that Martin Luther saw that caused him to nail that to the church. One of those things was the selling of indulgences. Here's what that was. They were trying to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica that's in Rome today. And in order to build that, they needed money. Well, here was the, here was the deal. You know, and according to Catholic belief, if you die and you have been really, really bad, you go to hell. Kind of bad, purgatory. Good, you go to heaven. Well, let's say that your loved one had died and you weren't really sure where they went. They would sell you an indulgence and a priest would pray them. It was a shortcut to get your loved one from wherever they ended up to heaven. You would pay money and someone would say a prayer on their behalf and there would be a shortcut. Martin Luther began to look at some of these things, and he wasn't the only one, and began to see problems with this sort of thing. And so these these 95 theses that he nailed to that door were essentially 95 complaints, were essentially 95 grievances that he had with some things that were going on within the church that he was a part of, that he didn't agree with. This... Um, became known, like as we look back at it, this was really the beginning of what we know as the Protestant Reformation, of movement in the 1500s and 1600s where, where there was a lot of teaching against these perceived moral failures and these perceived doctrinal errors within the Catholic Church. And this launched the Protestant Reformation. Now think about that for just a minute. We're Protestants, right? As Baptists, we, we're Protestants. Think about the root of those words. Protestant, Reformation. Protest, and Reform. 
That's really what they wanted, right? They were speaking up. They were protesting and speaking up about where they thought that the, the, the church was wrong, the direction of the church was wrong, and their intention was to reform the church from within. But that didn't happen. In fact, those who taught those things were uh, excommunicated, excluded um, uh, out of the Catholic Church, right? And so that reform never actually happened. But these that we want to talk about today, there were five real bases of belief that led to that Protestant Reformation. When those that, that spoke out in protest, those that wanted these reforms to come, really focused in on five principles where they felt like the teaching of the Catholic Church was wrong, these have come to be known as the five solas. That's what we want to think about over the next five weeks, the five solas. The solas, sola is a Latin word that just means alone, only or alone. Okay? And so there are five of them. I want to tell you all of them, and you'll sometimes hear them referred to in Latin, so I want to give you those two. Okay? And I'm going to try to track through the order that we will go in over the next five weeks. We'll start today with sola gratia, that is grace alone. We'll start next week then with sola fide, which is faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Those five foundational truths do more than just separate us from, say, Catholic belief, all right? And I'm not beating up on the Catholics over the next five weeks, okay? This is, this is a lot about what we believe and why we believe it are these five messages, okay? And we'll focus on those things, grace and faith, Christ, Scripture, and the glory of God. Now, when I say that, and you think about this is more than just doctrinal differences. This is about how a person is saved. And when I say that, you may say, well, David... I don't understand. How can there be five alones? Like, if it's grace alone, what's, what's faith then? If it's Christ alone, how can these alones be? It's not, we're not talking about grace separate from faith or faith separate from Christ. That's not what alone means. When you look at Catholic doctrine, there is an addition to other things. People try to add things to these. So, for instance... It's grace alone, not merit. It's, not, it's faith alone, not faith and works. It's Christ alone. It's not Christ and another priest or another mediator. It's Scripture alone, not Scripture plus the tradition that men come up with or what the Pope says. It's the glory of God alone, not the glory of saints or Mary or other people. It's to the glory of God alone. See where this goes? These are the solas, the alones in this, in this that we're talking about. We're talking about what we believe in these particular areas. And today we want to start with that first one, sola gratia, grace alone. Let's think today about God's amazing grace. I wanted to open up with a story today, and I knew the story, but I didn't know where it came from. Thank you, Wits. I had it in a book, and Colton and Daniel helped me this this uh, story is a story that Phil Necro tells in the Knuckleball documentary. I thought it was in a book, but it was in a, in a documentary, and they got me on the right track. 
Phil Necro tells this story that when he was recruited to play baseball, there was a scout from the Milwaukee Braves that came and was going to just show up in town, and it was an open thing. Anybody could come. And so uh, his parents dropped him off in the morning, and he did his thing. And that evening, the scout was at their house, and they were talking to him about, about you know, uh, Phil playing baseball. And at some point in the discussion, when they got down to the brass tacks, the scout looked at Phil's father and said, well, what do you think about 250 a month? And his dad said, sir, I'm a poor coal miner. I don't have $250 a month. <laughs> and he said, no, we'll give you $250 a month, right? What a beautiful thing it is to know that when it comes to God's grace, when it comes to the sin debt that we have, what Cody sang about, right? It's not, if, if it were not for grace, there would be a constant debt to be paid. But here's why grace is so important. Because of God's grace, it is not a never-ending cycle of us throwing in trying to make up the difference because of our sin. God has paid the way for us. This is the beauty of it. This is why grace alone is so important. This wrong view that we're saved by something other than some kind of inherent um, favor that we have or some kind of earned favor with God, that is not where salvation comes from. And we can get caught up on that. In these first two weeks, grace and faith are very similar in the idea that we're relying wholly on God. So when these guys look at Scripture in the 15 and 1600s, where do they see this? I'm going to start in Romans 11, and today I want to give you four places, and I want to, we're going to go to several different places in Scripture looking at four areas. What I want to do is break down God's work of saving us into four particular areas. These are all part of our salvation. They're all things that happen when we are saved, right? They all define God's work when he saves us. And I want us to see grace in all of it, okay? Let's start with this. I want us to first talk about God's gracious, electing work. What does that mean, David? This idea of electing, of election, is the idea that as a believer in Christ, you were chosen from the foundation of the world. Before the ages began, you were chosen in Christ. This is based on God's grace alone, this is not some foreseen act of any kind. This is on God's grace alone. You find this in Romans chapter 11. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. The discussion that's going on here is about God and his people. And in Romans 11 and verse 5, Paul writes to the Romans and says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This choosing is not based on anything that is earned, no works. It is all grace. Do you get what the verse is saying? There cannot be a mixture of the two. If you add one ounce of works to grace, it's not grace. If you add one ounce of grace to works, they don't mix. You see what I'm saying? It is either one or the other. It is grace or works. If your Bible's open to Romans 11, flip back to Romans 9. 
He gives another example of this in Romans 9, and he's, he's going to talk a little bit about um, Jacob and Esau. And this idea that Rebekah, when she was pregnant with these boys, um, that God chose Jacob. It was not based on anything that they did. In Romans 9, starting in verse 11, it says, And though they were not yet born, these boys, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Go down to verse 15. For God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now listen, the Bible clearly tells us that when we are saved, we are called to respond in faith to him. I want you to hear me very clearly. I'm not denying that in the slightest, okay? But what I am saying and what I think the Bible teaches is that God has chosen you and I long before we ever were, long before, any, long before Christ died on the cross. You and I were chosen in him. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you were chosen in him before you had an inkling that God was ever. This is what you need to know about grace is it begins with God. Our salvation begins with God. It doesn't begin with us. And these verses make that abundantly clear, that it was him doing the choosing. It wasn't something in us. John Phillips writes, says on this, these passages in Romans, God's choice is based upon his superlative wisdom, not upon the merit of a given individual. God's choice is based not only on his superlative wisdom, but also on his sovereign will. God is under no obligation to explain his ways to men. He is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. Since he is God, what he does is always right and cannot legitimately be questioned by men who are limited in intelligence and in knowledge and whose moral and spiritual capacities are impaired by sin. If God's doing the choosing, God is going to choose rightly because God is right. He's right. And so many of our misunderstandings, I think, about this doctrine of election come from the fact that we try to make God's mind like our mind, right? We try to say, okay, well, okay, I'm with you, David, on, on election. And some people would say, okay, David, God chooses all that, and we don't have a choice in it. And God chooses all that, and it's chosen. Hmm. I don't know if that's what Scripture teaches either, right? Then there's this idea where people say, well, God knew what I was going to choose before I chose it. And so God chose, right? And all of those are trying to make God's brain like our brain, like God works on this timeline that you and I work on and God is outside of time. This is not the same thing. Trying to figure out the mind of God in this particular doctrine of election, we are never going to get it. In a lot of ways, we're never going to get it. But we should take what Scripture has told us about God, what it reveals to us about him, and those things we know that we can say to be true. In this particular instance, probably where this discussion comes up and where it ruffles feathers in the choosing, when we read the Old Testament, we don't question the fact that God chose the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament is presented as God's chosen people, right? Now, God could have chosen anybody. Why didn't God choose the Egyptians? Why didn't he choose the Midianites or the Moabites? 
Why didn't God choose any of them? And if we wanted to chase down the answer to that question, we could go round and round and round and round in circles, but we are not God. We don't know. He's based on his sovereign will, his superlative wisdom, as John Phillips put it. God even says so. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6, this is God explaining why he chose them as his people. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. Do you remember we've looked at that verse recently? We looked at that verse about a month ago when we talked about the show me prayer that that God said to Moses was in that passage in Exodus 33 where God asked, I mean, where Moses asked God, God, show me your glory. And then God said, he gave the parameters. God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And we talked that day about how we can't dictate to God the terms by which he shows us his glory. Neither can we dictate to God the terms of his choosing. God chooses This idea that his foreknowledge is not just some sort of simple prognostication about the future, but that it is active. It brings about what is foreknown. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9 reads this way. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, it's God who saved us. God saved us and he called us to a holy calling. It's not because of our works, Timothy but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This idea that God, at the very beginning, before we ever have a say in the matter, God's electing work is already working on our behalf. Before before we're ever exposed to the gospel, before we know that God exists, before we ever hear about Christ on the cross, God's grace is at work. John Calvin says this, If on the part of God it is grace alone, and if we bring nothing but faith which strips us of all commendations, it follows that salvation does not come from us. This idea that we're called to respond and exercise faith in him, yes. But theologians call this and speak about us coming to him with an empty hand of faith. There's nothing that we bring to the equation. Nothing. In him alone, this is his electing work, is that he works on our behalf before we ever were. See, his gracious electing work, let me give you another one. Let's talk about his gracious atoning work. If you're still in Romans, go back with me to Romans chapter 3. Let's talk about his atoning work. He has atoned for our sin. This is why this is important. In our sin, you and I have two real problems. One problem is an outside problem, okay? The other is an inside problem. The outside problem we've got to deal with as a sinner is God's wrath. 
Because we are a sinner, we have set ourselves apart from God. We are due the punishment of God, and God's wrath is directed toward us because of our sin. That's That's a problem, right? The other problem is our internal sin. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. This is an inside problem, okay? God's gracious atoning work deals with our outside problem. It deals with his wrath. In other words, a debt needed to be paid, and God satisfied the debt. This is the idea, that God, based on his grace alone, not any merit, is added to what Christ did on the cross for us. God sent Christ to die for us, to atone, to propitiate, to to satisfy his own wrath. If you look to Romans 3, this is where the reformers would find this. Romans 3, let's start in 24 and 25. Paul writes, we are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified. Just as if we had never sinned. We're made right in the eyes of God. This problem that we had, our sin debt, the fact we had offended God with our sin, that's that's done with. That's justified. That's been fixed. It's been fixed by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This is God making us right with him. That word propitiation that's used in the second part of that is this idea that God is is satisfying. A propitiation is to appease one who is angry. And it's often done with a gift. And if you look at that passage, there's really three big churchy words I see in 24, justified. I see in the second half of 24, redemption. And I see in 25, the word propitiation. Those are big churchy words. And all of them speak to what he is doing for us. The fact that he has justified us. He has made us right with God who we had wronged. He has redeemed us. Brings to mind the the slave market and a price paid for the freedom of one who is now redeemed and set free. A propitiation, an appeasement of the wrath that God felt toward you and I because of our sin. This is the idea that God has freed us from our sin through what Christ had done on the cross. This atoning work is all about Jesus paying the price for me and you. When it says that he put forward his propitiation, put him forward as a propitiation by his blood, it's telling us the cost of our redemption. It cost Jesus Christ his life. G. Campbell Morgan has a great story about this. He was preaching a revival, and he was talking to a man, and Cody said earlier that you can't um, outsend God's grace. Right? Cody made that statement, and this is where this man was, as G. Campbell Morgan had preached and then was in discussion with this fellow, this is where this fellow's real hang-up was is that he, he couldn't understand this idea that he brought nothing to the table, right? And that Christ's work on the cross was enough for him, right? It was enough to pay the price. And as they began to talk a little bit, G. Campbell Morgan said, well, what do you do, you know, what do, you do for a living? And the guy told him that he was a coal miner. And as he talked to him a little bit, he, he said, now listen, when you go to work every morning, how, you know, you get, you, what do you do to get down into the mine? And the guy said, well, I, you know, I go and they, I get on the elevator and I go down into the mine. G. Campbell Morgan said, well, who paid for the elevator? He said, well, the, the, the mining company did. You didn't pay for the elevator? 
but you ride it every morning, getting in and out of that mine shaft. He said, yeah. He said, look, that's a picture of God's grace. Like They paid for that elevator when they put it in, when, when the company put it in, and now you get to enjoy the benefits of it. You don't have to climb down a ladder. You don't have to scramble over rocks. You get on the elevator, and you go to work. So this is what it is. This is what God's grace is. His death on the cross has paved the way. It is the way for us to enjoy the benefits that we find in Christ. It is the atoning work. There is no reason why you and I should enjoy the redemption and the justification that we find in Christ. No reason. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is true because... He has paved the way. He has made the way for us through his gracious atoning work. Let me give you a third one. His gracious electing work, his gracious atoning work. But let's look thirdly at his gracious regenerating work. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm sorry to make you turn back and forth, but I can't, I can't really do this from one spot in Scripture, so I've got to get you to turn with me there, okay? If you get tired of turning, they're going to put it on the screen in a little bit, okay? Um, if God's electing work happens before we ever were, and God's atoning work is dealing with the outside problem of God's wrath, God's regenerating work is dealing with the inside problem that we have. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And it is through God's grace that we are made alive in Christ. This is what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. Cody read a portion of this passage um, earlier. We want to start in verse 5. Ephesians 2 and verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You've raised us up with him seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm reading all the way through verse 10 because we will come back to that verse in subsequent weeks. Because that, if you look at it, it includes a lot of our words that we want to talk about, right? Grace, faith, Christ. All these words are here. This is a pretty important verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. This passage, ultimately, though, for our purposes today, tells us that our internal problem before we came to Christ was a spiritual deadness. You understand that a person who does not know Christ is not spiritually sick. It's not as if they took some sort of spiritual pill that they would get better. The, the condition is way worse. They are dead. And if you are spiritually dead, that's a real problem. Dead people don't think. Dead people don't feel. Dead people don't taste. They don't know. They don't speak. They don't hear. Dead people are dead. And this passage begins by telling us in verse 5 that we were dead in our trespasses 
in our sins. Now, he's done some things about that. He's, look at the verse. He's made us alive. He's raised us up. He's shown us immeasurable riches of his grace. All of these things, these raised and, and made alive, it indicates this direct and immediate thing that happens at the point of our salvation. We were dead. When you came to Christ, you were dead. And there was nothing you could do to save yourself. I want you to imagine for just a minute that I had a huge heart attack. Right now, I had a heart attack, which will be the worst time to have it because now you think it's all a game, right? But so if I really, I'm not planning to fall down on the floor. So if I really have one, do something immediately, okay? So uh, if I were to have a heart attack right now and I were to fall down here on the ground, right? And I was unconscious and I was hurting and something was wrong, I'm not dead. At that point, I'm not dead. I'm just out of it. But you know, I could not walk back there to that foyer, to that AED machine, open the door, get it out, unzip the bag, turn it on, stick the paddles to me, or you know, those little pads, stick those things to me. Clear, everybody, I'm about to shock myself. And then push the button and feel the jolt. I couldn't do all that. Incapacitated. A dead person is worse than that. A dead person is not just incapacitated, they are dead. You and I, that picture by itself should show us that there is nothing that we can do in the deadness of our sin to make ourselves alive. We don't bring anything to this equation of our salvation because we are spiritually dead. Liberty commentary on this says, God did it. We were born from above instantly and once and for all. God may have used a powerful preacher or a praying parent or a tearful teacher, but he did it. He did it when we trusted Christ, not because we prayed so earnestly or repented bitterly or resolved so thoroughly. Salvation is grace plus nothing. It's not our own individualism or self-reliance or self-initiative that causes us to be saved. It is God's regenerating work of revealing to us and speaking to us and calling to us. You see, up until this point, really everything that we've talked about so far, while we're justified at the moment of salvation, the means by our justification happened way back there, 33 AD, him on the cross, right? So if you think about the timeline that we're experiencing, this idea of his electing work is way back under before we ever were. His atoning work was handled when Jesus died on the cross for me and for you. There's no other sacrifice that needs to be made. He was it. That moment where God opens our eyes to recognize our sinful state and our need for him, this is what's happening. God is doing it. Now, he may use... A hundred different methods as a way to do that, but God himself is doing it. Spurgeon on this says, I ask any saved man to look back on his own conversion and explain how it came about. You turned to Christ and believed on his name. These were your own acts and deeds. But what caused you thus to turn? Do you attribute this singular renewal to the existence of something better in you than has been yet discovered in your unconverted neighbor? No. You confess that you might have been what he is now if had it not been that there was a potent something which touched the spring of your will, enlightened your understanding, and guided you to the foot of the cross. 
You cannot explain that awakening in yourself by yourself because you are dead in your trespasses and sin. And this idea of his regenerating work, this doesn't come from me or you or something that we do or something that we earn. These three things in and of themselves show us that God's grace alone is at work. We can't go through it by some kind of merit, right? By doing something or by something that we inherently have because of some good name. It is God's grace alone that is working for us before we ever were. Love moved first. When we were at our worst, love moved first. It happened in the, his electing work. And he dealt with his wrath with his atoning work, and he dealt with our spiritual deadness in his regenerating work. But I want you to see finally his gracious sanctifying work. Sanctify, that's another churchy word, huh? Sanctification is the process of us becoming like Christ. That's all it is. It's this idea that as an immature believer, we don't act much different than a person who is an unbeliever. As an immature believer, there's a lot of things that are different about you than the unbeliever. You're on your way to heaven. You're saved. Right? You have the gift of the Holy Spirit. All of those things are true. And there should be an identifiable change in us. But an, uh, an immature believer behaviorally can look a lot like an unbeliever. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is in this passage that we'll learn a little bit about how he uses, he, how he sanctifies, how th- if we're going to live a holy life once we come to Christ, this is by God's grace as well. If everything that happened prior to our salvation Everything that happened to cause our salvation is because of his grace. All of the holy acts and the things that happen after we are saved is also by his grace. This is God's gracious sanctifying work. We're to be a holy people, and that does not happen apart from God and his grace. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. Paul writes, But by the grace of God... I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, I need to do a little explanation. Because if you've read Paul and his letters, you may even know what he's talking about here. But we need to explain or else you could get the wrong, just reading this one verse, you could get the wrong thing if you take it out of context, okay? Paul says here, it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. What is Paul? Well, you could say he's saved, right? It's by the grace of God that he's saved and not what he was before. When he was on the road to Damascus and headed to kill Christians and persecute them and drive them, drag them back to Jerusalem, right, in chains, he was that way. And it's by God's grace that he is now not that. He is saved and he is preaching the gospel of Christ. You could say that. Another thing that you could say, especially within the context of the verse, is Paul was an apostle. Now, when we use that word, there's not apostles today, all right? I don't know what joker you watch on TV or whatever, but there's not apostles today, okay? 
Just because you call yourself one don't make you one, okay? Apostle, an apostle is one who sat under the direct teaching of Jesus Christ, okay? So unless they're really, 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 really old, they're not an apostle, okay? And so when you, uh, when you think about those 12, like Paul was not one of the 12, right? But we call him still the apostle Paul. Because of that experience on the road to Damascus where he had this encounter with Jesus. And Paul even speaks about that. If I'm not mistaken, it's right here in this particular passage, um, in, or, or in this particular chapter, where he talks about the fact that he appeared to those, the very verse right before this, I'm the least of the apostles. He appeared to James and then the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. From the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Because he was there and in the presence of Jesus, we call him the apostle Paul. But Paul recognized that he was not an apostle in the sense that he did not walk with Jesus and experience the miracles and all those sort of things that you might think about the 12 having experienced, right? But notice what Paul says. It's by God's grace that I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. There were legs on it. There has been a real change in me. Look at the next phrase, because you could really come across. This could sound really arrogant if you don't get the second part. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder than Peter, worked harder than John, worked harder than James. I worked harder than any of them. And that sounds like an egotistical statement, right? Now, first of all, we know, just what we know about Scripture, that the gospel really advanced under the ministry of Paul, right? I mean, the, the gospel exploded across the Mediterranean and across that ancient world, right? People were even saying of Paul and those that ministered with him that these men have turned the world upside down. We know that there was a dramatic change in the life of the church because of Paul's ministry. That's what Paul's speaking about. In some ways, he recognizes that the impact of his ministry in the spreading of the gospel has been more widespread than those original 12. But notice what he says in the second part. And this is not me. It's not I. It's not, it's not because of me that this is happening. It is the grace of God that is with me. God has changed me. God is working in me. God is sanctifying me and making me different, and God is using me. God is using me to further the gospel in some ways more than he did those original 12. But that's no credit to me. It's God using me to get it done. This verse connects the idea of God saving grace with the grace that we live out when we serve him. The it connects saving grace and serving grace. This idea that, that grace precedes. Grace precedes who we are or what we are in Christ. That grace changes us. That grace comes on the scene and grace makes the change. The song that we sang said, you saw that I couldn't make the change in me, so you came and you became the change in me. I couldn't make that change because I was dead in my trespasses and sin, mainly, right? But you have come and you have become the change in me. I did not behave with the mind of God. I did not act with the mind of Christ. But you 
Put your Holy Spirit in me. You put your mind in me as an act of grace for me to live out the holy life that you have called me to. Grace is the only thing that makes the decisive change in the life of the believer. It's God working in me and you that changes us. Four things. God's electing grace before we were ever around. Before we ever were, God's electing grace was working on our behalf. His atoning grace by sending Christ to die on the cross for me and you has propitiated his wrath and fixed that outside problem. His regenerating grace has fixed the inward problem of our spiritual deadness and made us alive in Christ. And if you know him, it is his sanctifying work, his gracious sanctifying work that is working in you and making you more like Christ every day. Now listen, I recognize that this message and the messages that follow are doctrinally heavy. I get that. Okay? I also, uh, let me say, I understand that all of this may be totally new to you, and if it is, it is a lot to take in. At the same time, when it comes to the doctrine of grace alone, I have not even really scratched the surface. And so there's got to be a medium in there somewhere, right? But it would be a failure if we left here without a big takeaway. And the big takeaway is this. In our salvation, it is God alone and not anything on our part that makes that happen. Our salvation begins and ends with him. That's where it begins, at his grace. It's not something you earn. It's not something you work for. It's not something that's inbred in you. His grace doesn't happen because you take a class or because you eat a wafer or because you do any of those things. That's not where, that's not where his grace originates in our salvation. It's not something that we do it is wholly him. And I would say to you that this may be the first. Some of you have walked in here today, and this is the first time you've ever heard any mention of solas. It's the first time you've ever heard any mention of that. It may be the first time that you've ever thought about the doctrine of grace in, in our salvation at all, and it being by grace alone and not something that you work for because we're told over and over and over again which we'll focus on mainly next week we're told over and over and over again by our culture that we have to work for our salvation and work to be good enough to be to go to heaven but the bible teaches that it is based on god's grace alone working in us before we ever were and if you're a believer in jesus christ if you don't take away anything doctrinally from that know that it is God alone who works in our salvation and I bet you can identify with the testimony of these men this is Martin Luther remember he nailed those things to the church door in 1517 Martin Luther God has surely promised his grace to the humbled that is those who mourn over and despair of themselves but a man cannot be thoroughly humbled 
until he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and work, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another, God alone. Charles Spurgeon in his autobiography. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that he was the author of my faith, and so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession I ascribe my change wholly to God. In a minute, we'll pray and we'll sing a song. And that would be an invitation for you to respond to God's grace. And if you come today and you respond to God's grace, it will not be because you made a decision to follow him it will have begun with God working long before you ever were. That's where it will begin. You may be here and you may can think to a time when you surrendered and you, you gave your life to Christ. And you said, God, I trust you wholly to make this change in me. But as of late, when it comes to his sanctifying work, somewhere along the way you've convinced yourself that it's about you doing something in order to gain his favor. It's not merit. It's his grace. And maybe today you would come and you would say, God, I've been too dependent on me and not dependent enough on you and your grace. I don't know how he would lead you today, but I know that it is through God's grace alone that we are chosen, atoned for, regenerated, and made to be like Christ. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to find more resources to help you grow in your walk with Christ, check out our website at rootedandresolved.org.